First uh, First Samuel chapter thirteen. Saul lived for one year, and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose three thousand men of Israel. Two thousand were the Saul in Michmash um, and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at uh, Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land. Notice who blew the trumpet. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the, he- let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore. In multitude they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes, rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fjords of the, of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's to the east. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon, verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered, uh, scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and, and uh, that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself. <laughs> I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. Um, literally unbelievingly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man, sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him uh, to be a prince or a leader, probably more literally, a leader over His people because you have not kept the word of the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. Uh, They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. That's all he could do, by the way. Just number the men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines camped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah the land, uh, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth-horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. 
but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrisons of the the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Father, we are grateful for your word, your word, Lord, that continues to reveal who you are. Lord, what a great reminder in the first service of the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of your Son, our Savior, our Lord, and your word. I pray, Father, that you would, God, open our eyes, that you would, God, as you are faithful to do, reveal great truths from your law to your people. You would show us, God, um, um, not only what's there, not only give us an intellectual understanding, but Lord, our... um, our minds would be opened in such a way that it would affect our hearts and affect our living, and affect the way we think, the way we respond to You, the way we treat one another. Lord, we, we long to be different people. We, we acknowledge, God, our, our great need. We thank You for the grace and forgiveness that is ours in Christ, and we long for that day that we'll be finally and fully made like Him. But Lord, I, I pray that until then You might, Lord, continue Your faithful work. We thank You that You will. You who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You will, Lord, continue to sanctify Your people. So, Lord, by Your truth, Your Word, sanctify us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you have your Bibles open to uh, to First Samuel. I um, I struggle with what to, to name this uh, passage, and I know you hate to hear pastors pastors say that, but but I, uh, I, I there there is uh, I think one kind of overarching theme, and that is, that is this idea of, of um, God caring about how we handle holy things. God cares how we handle His holy things. We, we live in a culture that, that, that doesn't consider God in the Word, word right? And, and in many places, even the church uh, um, either, either doesn't consider or, or sort of casually considers God and His Word, right? Certainly, that's the case in, in our culture, in our world. If any of you have ever moved to a, to a new house or a new place and you've packed up some of your precious breakables, you know how uh, easily it is that when you get to your destination and you open those, open those things up to see that you either didn't pack them well enough or you packed them carelessly or they weren't handled very well, you can see how quickly things that are precious, things that are valuable can be ruined. Correct? This is really what we have here in, in, in chapter 13, is a, if you will, a quick ruin of Saul. It is really the beginning of his ruin. And you see that very quickly here. That this, is, uh, this can happen in the church. It can certainly happen with our dishes. It can certainly happen with the church. This is the impression of chapter 13, the ruin that has come quickly to Saul. Now we've said this before that if you're looking for a church, and I hope that all of you are not, none of you are looking for a church here. But if you're looking for a church, how that church handles holy things is an indicator of what that church thinks about God, the Lord's table. How how does that church handle the things at the Lord's table? How do they handle things like baptism and music? And preaching. I mean, even our outreach and evangelism give a clear picture of what that church thinks about God. I think there is increasing pressure in our world today as, as attendance is dropping in most mainline denominations to accommodate the world and compromise truth for the sake of a crowd. I rejoice to tell you that I believe in most places it isn't working. Yes. 
Praise God for that. I mean, even the crowds of unbelievers can see through most of the nonsense that the church is trying to present and and, and compete with the world's entertainment and music and lighting. However, there are places where droves or countless numbers of people are flocking to hear these kind of nonsense preachers and nonsense churches. Thank God for our pastor, our pastor. Eric uh, speaking in the first service to remind us of these kind of vain, empty philosophies. Mm. May I say, listen, God is holy. And God cares greatly how His people live and handle holy things. Many people in many churches have simply created a God after their own image, right? A, a, a God in their own likeness. A God who embraces everything and anything except His Word. A, a God who is not that concerned with where He's worshipped or how He's worshipped and uh, which woman leads that worship. They've created a God who cannot save an unholy little thing with no, ch- no power to change my wicked heart or yours. Ah, what a sad day we live in. I, uh, I was talking to a man uh, some years ago. We were doing a, a little downtown festival in a church we were part of and giving out gospel tracts and talking to a people, people about the Lord. And this guy came up uh, to me and he had a, he had a uh, obviously had a, a visible uh, party shirt on. I won't tell you what was on it. Uh, I started talking to him and he, says, uh, he said, um, uh, um, My Jesus is not like your Jesus. My Jesus likes to party, he said. And so, uh, as, as I was talking to him, um, it, it was clear that we we did have two different Jesuses. Yeah. I said, uh, I said, yeah, it's it's true. Um, uh, as, as I asked him, what's your definition of a party? I, I I could tell if if you think Jesus is a riotous drunk, we have a different Jesus. Listen, we here are experiencing a season of favor from the Lord. Yeah. I'm so thankful for that. God is sending people. He's sending us resources to do missions around the world. We are experiencing a time of plenty. May I warn you that there may come a time when our God in His good sovereignty decides to grow us down. (laughs) He decides to stop the flow of people and resources. When He decides to put some Philistines in our path, if you will, to try us with fire. Listen, whatever He decides, we can not compromise on the truth. We cannot create a, a, a God of our own making. Uh, uh, we, can't, we can't just simply compromise truth and God's work for the, for the sake of a larger crowd or, or for the sake of some kind of perceived success. We cannot create for ourselves our own God. If we do so, listen, we're betraying the very God we're calling people to follow. It is a real mark of unbelief to say that God and His Word is not enough to govern our worship. God and His Word are not enough to to teach us how to handle holy things. That God and His Word are not enough to, to teach us how to live or to sing or to give. It is a mark, listen, a mark of unbelief to say and do anything contrary to the Word of God. In our text today... We have a moment in the life of King Saul that reveals, if you will, a level of unbelief in his own heart. 
What would have started out as a pretty good beginning for Saul, seen through this, this, uh, this, this first part of Samuel, is going to be marked for an ugly ending in this chapter. It really is, if you will, the beginning of the end of Saul here in our text. I want to begin here just uh, looking, uh, looking at these first four verses here with a, with a, a little failure. A little failure. Taking notes, that's my first point. A little failure. Verses 1 to 4, here it is. Saul lived for, for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard, it, heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The story starts there in verses 1 to 4. And you may be thinking, who stole all the numerals of the text? Verse 1. You're thinking, what? What does that doesn't make any sense? Now, listen. You can do your own study to resolve the issues there in verse one. I don't want you to be distracted from the heart of the matter, from the meaning of the text. John MacArthur, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, helps you with a little study note down there. It seems to be in verse one that that's simply a summary of all that took place concerning the calling and the, what led up to the kingship of Saul. So don't be thrown uh, thrown off by that first verse. In any case, what starts out as hopeful, a hopeful beginning for Saul, here turns in this chapter to a royal failure. And on some level, really a, a hopelessness. This is the beginning, uh, and we're going to get to it later, uh, of a longer narrative, which, is, which we won't complete today, which goes on into, into chapter 14, even on into chapter 15. Verses 1 to 4 give us an early picture of some of the trouble for Saul. There is there's some initial rejoicing in Jonathan's success here. At least if you're an Israelite, they're going to rejoice in that, right? The Philistines weren't rejoicing, but, but certainly if you're an Israelite, there's rejoicing there. And at least until the rest of the Philistines hear about this, this uh, success of Jonathan, there's rejoicing. Where was Saul in this? Why wasn't Saul out in front of the armies of Israel? Why wasn't Jonathan was having to do this? There it is. There is, I, I think, a, a little good news even for believers right here. God's plans aren't stopped even when servants are reluctant to act. Aren't you glad for that? He has other servants to prove faithful in the day of the demonstration of His power. I'm so thankful for that. God can and does use anyone He pleases to accomplish His will. Well, we can just think about this. You and I are expendable, right? God can just use whoever He wants to, and He certainly used Jonathan in this. I read this not so long ago. Perhaps there would have been no need for George Whitfield and his wild practice of preaching in the fields if the Anglican preachers had not abandoned their pulpits. Yeah. Um, so there it is. God sometimes uses wild preaching in fields, doesn't He? To accomplish His purposes. Now, notice there in those verses, it's Jonathan's success, but Saul's trumpet and Saul's glory. This may signal, I think, a note of trouble for Saul already. A, a, a little failure, if you will. Already maybe a little pride. A, a little feeling that maybe I can take credit for these successes. Maybe I don't need the Word of God, the prophet Samuel. 
Right? Things are working out without Samuel, without the Word. And can't we relate to this on some level? We, we, we experience some, some success in life or in ministry, or, or we take credit for someone else's success or, or, or ministry, and, and, and then want to blow our own trumpet a little bit and, and think, man, you know, what would God do without me? <laughs> what would God do without me? Whatever the case with Saul, Israel uh, gave off a bad smell to those Philistines. And then we kind of end on a note there all of that, that kind of echoes from all the way back there in chapter 10, verse 8. Verse eight. The people are called to Gilgal. You guys remember Gilgal? Gilgal was the place that Joshua had gathered the people back there in Joshua chapter 5. I think Jonathan read it for me one Sunday. That was where the place where they renewed their commitment to the covenant that God had called them to them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They'd cross the River Jordan. They gathered out there. Joshua circumcised that first generation of Jews coming out of their wandering wilderness. There they renewed their commitment to God. There they celebrated the first Passover to the west of Jordan. You remember that? This was a place also that, that, uh, that uh, Samuel had called the people to the, renew the kingdom. And he had told them, what? Wait there seven days. So not only do we see a little failure, we see a much bigger failure. Much bigger failure. That's found in verses 5 and following there. This is really the heart of this chapter. It, it, it is, I think, a reminder, again, that God cares how we handle holy things. And let me say it this way too. God cares who handles holy things. The Philistines, listen, are a real problem, and that's going to pale in comparison with Saul's disobedience here. Some may argue in favor of Saul here. The, the penalty seems overly severe. I mean, Saul, uh, Saul had what appears to be a legitimate argument for, for offering the sacrifices himself. Saul waited seven days, or at least waited till the seventh day, what appears to be there in the text. His army was evaporating by desertion. The enemy was pressing upon him. I mean, how can he be blamed? I mean, how can we fault the guy, right? I mean, how can he be punished like that? Doesn't he deserve some understanding, some empathy, someone might argue, rather than punishment? And we get it, don't we? On some level, don't we get that? We've been under pressure. We, 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 we felt like we, we needed to compromise a little in some way. Man, can we not relate to this? That woman God gave you stays on you all the time about something. God will understand if we just look somewhere else. Right? Boss at work is writing you about deadlines and quotas. God will understand if you just, you just falsify some reports a little bit. If you just lie just a little bit. If you just cut some corners, God will understand, right? How about the, Let's just think about a church, right? How about, how about the crowds are waning? At church, we, we no longer have the numbers that we used to. God will understand. If we just introduce some secular methods or shorten or soften our messages, or I'm sorry, where Andy, he's not in here, but if we have a cooler, younger music leader, <laughs> for the sake of the crowd, right? For some more giving units. There's a good one I hear oh, sometimes. Oh. We need more giving units. God's okay with all that. Let me just, you, you guys know the answer. Listen, sin is never the answer. Amen. It's never the answer. It's always better to deal with a nagging wife, a cruel boss, and a waning church than an angry God. Remember, listen, God has answers for each of those situations, doesn't He? He has answers for us in His Word. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to sin as believers. We don't 
don't have to act without clear instructions from God in His Word. And so Saul offers these burnt offerings and these peace offerings, these offerings that God had authorized only Samuel to offer. Saul was probably safe there at Gilgal. In other words, he, he, he probably was not in any real danger from the, from the Philistines at that moment. It was strategically isolated. It was near the Jordan River. If they needed to, they just simply crossed the river. Besides all that, he had the promises of God. His success was linked to the promises of God. He said, if you obey my voice, you're going to have success. That was the promise. God never takes lightly disobedience. Remember, it was for sin and sinners that Christ died. Amen? Saul seems uh, to know immediately he's messed up. Let's look at, uh, look, let's look at verses 10 and following there. Uh, verse, uh, verse 10. It says, um, uh, let's see here if I can find it. Verse 10. Back up to verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon... Look, listen to that. As soon as he had finished burning, see, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. <laughs> behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw the people were scattered from, scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines uh, had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against us, against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel Forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince or leader over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We'll pause there. Saul, Saul seems to know immediately he's, he's messed up royally. Samuel, uh, Samuel comes, What have you done? Those must have been some kind of... You guys know this. The, the anxiety that floods your soul when you know you've messed up. Yes. When you know and somebody's confronted you in it. So Saul comes to, to greet Samuel there. I mean, I mean, you can almost see him acting like nothing's wrong, knowing in his heart that everything's wrong. Right. We, we've done this, right? Every, everything's wrong. He, he can certainly see and hear the disappointment of Samuel. What have you done? And he starts with the excuses, doesn't he? The, the, the Philistines are, are, are pressing upon us. You, you, you delayed. I, I've got all this pressure. I, I had to force myself to do this, he says. Then he tries to blame Samuel. Uh, verse, verse 10, I think it is, the, the Hebrew, and you, is uh, emphatic. Uh, and you, in other words, if you would have been here, Samuel, I wouldn't have had to do this. I wouldn't have had to force myself to do this. Verse 10 seems to suggest he waited to the seventh day. But the point is that Saul was to wait for Samuel's arrival so that he could receive the prophet's instructions and that Samuel would perform the appropriate sacrifices. That was it. Samuel carried the burden of the Word of the Lord. Samuel was essential to Saul's success and future. In times past, right, God spoke to us through the prophets. 
writer of Hebrews tells us. Samuel was given the task of sacrifice. Saul was given the task to wait. That was it. Instead, he proceeded without the word of God through the prophet. And so Saul, uh, Saul thought uh, ritual, ritual was more important than direction. Sacrifice was more important than the word of God, he thought. The word of God was dispensable in this moment. Certain emergencies in Saul's thinking rendered the Word of God unnecessary. When the chips are down, I can function on my own, so he thought. His pride was showing, wasn't it? His fear was showing. His doubt was showing. And isn't that the case with us as well? That when trials come, when difficulties come, it really reveals our heart. It shows what's going on on the inside many times, and this is certainly the case with Saul. We can relate to that too, I think. When things get tough, when... Our home is in trouble. When our church is in trouble, someone has to act. Someone has got to do something. Something has to change. The emergency requires action. We can function on our own in this situation. It's it's okay to, to compromise truth. It's okay to sin during certain emergencies, so we think. No prayer. No seeking God. No biblical solution to our problems. But you have to realize, listen, that there's sometimes some serious consequences to our sinful actions. And so here we have some consequences for Saul. Look at verses 13 and 14 once again. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. In other words, you've kind of done unbelievingly. That's the word foolish there. A fool what? Says in his heart, there is no God. Here he's as that fool. He didn't... um, He didn't trust the Word of God. He didn't trust Samuel, certainly God's prophet. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. In other words, there's not going to be someone in your line, Saul, who's going to continue as king. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince. I think the word is leader. Uh, to, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over the people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There it is. There's the consequence. We've said this before in my preaching through, uh, through Samuel, that, that covenant curses are more than just words tucked away in some secret document somewhere. Have we not seen that? Through all, the, through all of our study, through the book of Judges, through all of our study through Samuel, that covenant curses are real. They're very real. I mean, ask someone like Hophni and Phineas. How about asking Eli? Right? These, godless, these godless sons and Eli who didn't restrain his boys and remove them from office. Oh, wait, they're dead. We can't ask them, can we? How about Uzzah? Remember Uzzah? Uzzah was a guy who thought maybe his hand was more holy than the ground that the ark was getting ready to fall on and reached down and touched the ark. Let's ask him about covenant curses. Oh, wait, we can't. He's dead. What about... What about uh, um, uh, the two guys, uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu. You, you remember those guys? Yeah, I mean, they didn't, they didn't seem to be um, um, overtly sinning against God. They strange fire before the Lord. Let, let's ask them about covenant curses. Wait, we can't. They're dead as well, aren't they? There seems to be. And we, we talked about Achan, I think, uh, just, a, just a few moments ago. I mean, ask the Corinthians. Let's throw, how about the New Testament? Let's ask Corinthians. Yeah about how they handled some holy things of God. Uh, about uh, Let's ask some of the sick folks and maybe some of the dead folks. Um, we, we can't, can we? I mean, they, they, they also realize that covenant curses are real. Yes. I mean, I think it's a mercy that Saul is even alive at this point. Saul forgot 
that he was subject to the law of a greater king. And would see the end of any lasting dynasty, that none of his descendants would ever be enthroned on the throne of Israel. But I think there's something sad, there's something deeper and something more consequential for Saul and for the people of Israel. Notice verse 15. Let's read verse 15 together. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Can you see there? Notice Saul and Samuel go where? They go two different places. And then we hear about the people. Saul had about 600 men with him. The rest of Israel's men hid. Uh, Weapons, at least metal ones, were unobtainable. Raiders, the Philistine raiders, were just freeloading throughout Israel. The troops remained, uh, the troops that remained were afraid. They were demoralized. But the worst part of all this was Saul didn't have the guidance of the word through Samuel. Can you see it there in verse 15? God sometimes, listen, here's, here's a principle for us. God sometimes removes His active presence and His divine favor. There's the word blessing. His divine favor teach us obedience and the consequence of sin. And we've seen that. We've seen that through, through Judges. We've seen that through the book of Samuel. Listen, the worst thing that can happen to, happen to us in this life or the life to come is to be separated from God and His Word for all eternity. That's the worst thing that can ever happen to us. I hope, listen, my brothers, my sisters, I hope that you will not neglect the gift of God and His Word. I, I, listen, to be stripped of the direction of the Word of God is to be truly impoverished. It is to be open to all kinds of ruin apart from Christ and His Word. It, it's one thing to be in trouble. It's one thing for your life to be in trouble. It's one thing for your marriage to be in trouble. It's one thing for your church to be in trouble. It's a whole other thing to be in trouble and to be alone in your trouble. This was the case with Saul. The best Saul can do now is simply number the troops. Saul is on his own. I, I think these are maybe some of, the, some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. Probably come up with a few other sad words in Scripture, but here it is, man. He's, he's on his own. He's gone one way and Samuel's gone another way. Uh, these are the consequences for his failure. I, wanna, I want you to notice just one more thing here. And that is, that is the hopelessness. The hopelessness um, that we see here in the text. Uh, there in the pick up there in verse, um, um, verse uh, 16 and following. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward... toward Turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Bethoran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, "Lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears." But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his own plowshare and his mattock and his axe and sickle. You, you get the idea there. Can you can you see it? I mean, there, there just seems like hopelessness now all throughout Israel. There it is. When Saul leaves, you expect the worst for Israel. I mean, that's the feeling that you get as you're reading the text. Israel has no direction now. Saul, their king, has no resource from the true king, that is, Jehovah. Saul is, is actually contributing, if you will, to the hopelessness of people. Boy, there's a message for leadership in churches, right? That our sin and our failures affect those people that we minister to. 
Listen, in a real sense, as a kingdom of priests that we are as the church of Jesus Christ. And all this body language of the New Testament, we're interrelated and interconnected to one another. Listen, your sin affects other believers as well. It affects all of us. Do you understand that? What you do and how you live and how you handle whole things affects everybody else around you as believers. Something for us to ponder. Our failures greatly affect other people. Lest we bring trouble upon the whole body. May the Lord help us to be holy. This is, I think, a a despairing moment in the life of Israel. Most of Israel's hiding. They didn't didn't take Jonathan's small victory as a sign of God's favor. Three three Philistine detachments left Michmash, it says. One to the north, one to the west, one to the southeast. I mean, no one can stop them. Think about it. And and there's no real weapons available. No, no metal ones anyway, right? They, I mean, they even had to go to Philistia even, even to have their, their farm tools serviced. <laughs> you know, if, if we're going to even get our farm tools, uh, farm tools serviced, we've got to go to Philistia. I mean, it's finished. Israel is finished, it would seem. It's done. You and I, you and I have been reading the text. <laughs> you and I have read the Bible before. You and I are familiar with the God of the Bible, Right? Yeah. We, we, we've discovered that hopelessness is often the backdrop of God's greatest deliverances. This has frequently, frequently been God's way with Israel. And listen, it's been frequently God's way with us. May I remind you of Philipp- uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That was us. I mean, how much hope does a dead man have? Right? How much? None. And not only that, we're following a, a dead leader to a dead place of eternal death. That was us. But then we read on there in Ephesians 2, but God. Yeah. <laughs> but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. <laughs> this is why... We who are the remnant of God don't lose heart even when we fail as believers. Mm. Do you understand? Even, even when we fail as believers, we don't lose heart. We know that God, the God who has rescued us over and over and over and over, did I say over? And over and over again will still rescue us. Yes. If we're a believer, right? We remember the cross. We're not given over to total despair even when we failed so miserably. And can we be honest today? Be honest with God. Be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we failed miserably. Even when we've handled holy things carelessly or casually, we who are His will not be utterly forsaken by our God. That's something I think that we can hold on to even in our failures. God will not ultimately abandon His people. What a great news. What great news. We have an advocate, don't we? Jesus Christ, the righteous, the Bible says, who paid the penalty of our sin, all of our ugly iniquity laid on Him, nailed to the cross, we read just a few moments ago. And listen, that's not a license for us to sin. That is fuel for our holiness. Our response then, listen, is simple repentance, renewed faith, and a commitment to obey all that our Christ teaches us. Father, thank You for this simple little truth, Lord. 
you do greatly care how we handle holy things. I pray, Father, that you would, Lord, grant to us, your children, your remnant, Lord, your little flock, all the necessary graces, God, to repent, to believe, and to live in a way and manner that pleases you. And Lord, when our trial comes, when our difficulties come, when our pressures come in life, oh God, I pray that you would help us to be committed to biblical solutions to our problems. We wouldn't take things in our own hands. That we wouldn't seek uh, other worldly methods and worldly ways, whether it be here in our church or we as individuals or in our families or at our workplace. But Lord, we would simply work on You. That we would seek Your pleasure in prayer and in Your Word. And that You might be glorified, God, in Your people. Thank You, Father, for Your tender mercies toward us that are made new every morning. Lord God, You've been good to us, better than we've ever deserved. We rejoice in You and the salvation that we have in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.